0: In The End of the Myth, Greg Grandin gives his thoughts on the function of the U.S.-Mexico border. To understand
1: the nation's current crisis, especially the way anti-immigrant nativism has become the binding agent for what is now called Trumpism, one has to understand that the border, over the long course of its history, has effectively become the negation of the frontier. The long boundary separating Mexico from the United States served as a repository of the racism and the brutality that the frontier was said, by its theorists, to leave behind through forward motion into the future. To say that the frontier marginalized extremism isn't just a metaphor or turn of phrase. Anglo-Saxism was literally pushed to the margins, to the 2,000 mile border line running from Texas to Southern California. Other kinds of racist extremism certainly found expression throughout the whole of the country, from lynching and Jim Crow to northern segregation. Supremacism was also kept sharp in the country's serial wars. But an important current that has fed into today's resurgence of nativism flows from the border.
0: ending the myth i'm brian and i'm munya and we are back after taking a much needed holiday break uh so that we could get omicron get cron yeah yeah
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and well something must have happened over that time because we are back talking specifically about greg grandin's book the end of the myth chapter nine a fortress on the border
1: a banger of a chapter absolutely yeah when we took some detours, we had some twists and turns over the last several episodes to get here, but we're finally ready to get focused and concentrate only on the text at hand.
0: Yeah, I mean, for sure. There will be no more departures or <laughs> diversions in this episode. But before we do that, I do want to take us back to Tacoma, Washington in
1: 1885.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> so... On November 3rd, a group of 500 men launched a pogrom in the small lumber town with the goal of expelling the 800 or so Chinese people who lived in Tacoma. Historian John Falzer describes the scene. 50 police stood by as a crowd of more than 500 armed men took control of the town. They ordered the Chinese residents to leave by 1.30pm. Suddenly, the mob went wild. Rioters began breaking into the buildings and ordering people from their homes. By mid-afternoon, 200 Chinese residents of Tacoma, with whatever belongings they could carry, were corralled at the wharf. Vigilantes nailed placards to wooden gates and doors, listing the few townsfolks who had tried to protect the Chinese. By the evening of November 3rd, except for a few domestic servants who were allowed to stay behind uh, to pack or to guard their employers' homes, no Chinese residents remained in Tacoma.
1: Purging a city of Chinese inhabitants via violent pogrom came to be known as the Tacoma Method and was carried out in countless towns in the western United States. In an article in Overland Monthly and Out West magazine from 1886, they tried to explain the impetus for the pogrom. The Chinese in Tacoma were, quote, engaged in trading, gardening, manufacturing shoes and garments, mill and household work, and the various branches of menial labor. There were probably 600 white men and women unemployed and suffering. It goes on to argue that the city had become so, quote, antagonistic to white occupation that at least nine-tenths of the white residents sympathized entirely with the movement to make it a white man's town of peace and plenty.
0: Tacoma had real problems, A company town where large amounts of the housing stock and jobs were controlled by the railroad, there was deep poverty and anger among the working class. Elected mayor in 1884, Jacob Weisbach, a well-off merchant and recent transplant to Tacoma, had already made a name for himself blaming the economic woes of the state on the Chinese. He was the head of the state's anti-Chinese league upon assuming office and made Chinese removal the core of his political agenda.
1: Weissenbach was aided by the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. Chinese immigration had boomed in the decades following the Civil War. As historian Richard White notes, More than 22,000 Chinese, largely from the Guangdong province, had entered the United States in 1876, and nearly 10,000 came in 1879. By 1880, there were roughly 105,000 Chinese in the American West. Overwhelmingly male, Chinese migrants on the West Coast were largely wage laborers, making up roughly a quarter of the workforce in California. The first real immigration law in modern U.S. history, the Chinese Exclusion Act banned the migration of Chinese laborers to the United States for a period of 10 years. It would later be extended in 1892 and formalized into permanent law in 1902. While many have seen the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act as a testament to America's racism, specifically the racism of the working class, historian Andrew Giori finds its root in the labor struggles of 1877. Quote, Politics are at the core of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Anti-Chinese hostility, after all, had been rife in California for 25 years before the rest of the country took notice and began responding in the mid-1870s. And anti-Chinese imagery had long pervaded the nation during the 19th century without precipitating any adverse federal legislation. However, racist the beliefs of politicians, workers, and other Americans in the post-Civil War years, Congress made no substantial effort to enact anti-Chinese laws in 1865 or 1870 or 1875. There was little demand and little to gain from such legislation. But when the National Railroad Strike jolted the nation in 1877, just as Reconstruction was collapsing, a new era emerged that would make anti-Chinese politics possible nationwide. Suddenly, the landscape had changed. Class conflict had forged this change and would keep generating and regenerating a changing political landscape for the duration of the Gilded Age. The fundamental question underlying the era's preeminent economic treaties, Henry George's Progress and Poverty, published in 1879, was how in a nation of such wealth and abundance could there be so much poverty? It was this problem that politicians confronted throughout the Gilded Age and beyond, and in seeking answers, one of the first solutions they grasped was Chinese exclusion. This solution, politicians argued, would protect, uplift, and enrich the working person. The Chinese Exclusion Act represented class politics on the cheap painless way for politicians to ensnare working people's support without providing any genuine solution to their problems
0: that capitalists in the united states would draw a connection between the 1877 railroad strike and immigration was inevitable after all in its report on the strike the pennsylvania state legislature wrote that the foreign spirit of communism helped to foment the strike the Chinese Exclusion Act brought unprecedented powers to control immigration into the federal government that were immediately seized for political ends. Pushed by progressive Teddy Roosevelt, the Immigration Act of 1903 denied entry and citizenship rights to any person opposed to, quote, organized government, meaning anarchists who had become the boogeyman du jour. One year later in the Supreme Court case, Turner v. Williams, the court upheld the ban, stating that Congress maintained the right to keep out, quote, dangerous additions to our population. It was found that Englishman John Turner, an immigrant with anarchist views, had no rights under the Constitution and could be arrested and deported at will. The case marked an important precedent that was used liberally against labor leaders over the next three decades.
1: The attack on immigrants was largely tied into an attack on the labor movement that falsely claimed all labor radicalism to be the work of foreign elements. This attack was bolstered by a new movement of scientific racism that began to take hold in the late 19th century. In the late 19th century, the ideas of evolution were applied to the domestic sphere to explain the vast differences in wealth and circumstance during the Gilded Age. Under the doctrine of social Darwinism, the capitalist class declared themselves the superior specimens who had proven themselves most fit, thus earning their fortunes. The fact that their fortunes were largely built on government handouts, theft, and horrid exploitation enforced through state violence did not seem to ever get in the way of the story. By 1900, The ideas of a racial empire combined with the ideas of social Darwinism to create a pseudoscientific movement called eugenics. The eugenics movement sought to create a master race through the use of selective breeding and ethnic cleansing.
0: The eugenics movement in the United States began in earnest in 1904, when the Carnegie Institution allocated large grants to Charles Davenport to build the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Complex on Long Island. New York, stay winning.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Greatest city in the world.
0: (laughs) Davenport's project was to build an interlocking web of eugenics research organizations. Believing in the system of racial hierarchy developed by American intellectuals in the early 19th century that placed Anglo-Saxons above all other races, Davenport set about building and consolidating an American eugenics program that would purge the country of all undesirable races. By 1910, Davenport had used money from the Carnegie Institution and the Harriman Railroad fortune to create the Eugenics Records Office with the goal of quietly cataloging the racial backgrounds of all Americans. At this time, the Rockefeller Foundation began to quietly fund eugenics studies in New York State. The end game was to ethnically cleanse the country 10% at a time, beginning with the group they referred to as the Lower Tenth, which constituted 14 million primarily Black Americans. In 1927, Davenport proposed that the cataloging project be extended to cover every person in the world. A testbed was set up in Jamaica to discuss the feasibility of eradicating every person of African descent on the planet.
1: This research was not done idly. When California adopted eugenics legislation in 1909 that mandated the forced sterilization of, quote, undesirables, it was the third state to do so. Over 25 years, California would sterilize 9,782 people. All told, at least 60,000 people were coercively sterilized in the U.S. and thousands more were incarcerated in camps for being defective. In almost every case, the victim was poor. A doctor in Chicago named Harry Heiselden became known as the Black Stork when it came out that for years he had been killing babies he had deemed unworthy of life. Rather than being punished for his murder spree... Heiselden was celebrated and even starred in a 1917 silent movie about his life. At institutions for the feeble mind, patients were subject to forced sterilizations and other abuses. One such institution in Lincoln, Illinois, fed its patients milk from tubercular cows as a test of the patient's racial fitness, leading to annual death rates of 30 to 40%. Very
0: cool. Uh, Yeah, God. (laughs) The renewed emphasis on determining the racial stock of U.S. residents led to the creation of a series of racial integrity laws at the state level. Virginia's 1924 Racial Integrity Act made it a felony to, quote, falsely identify one's race, punishable by a year in jail. Records collected by the eugenics office were used to, quote, expose racial imposters. A 1924 letter from the Virginia State Registrar gives us a flavor of the intent and effects of the law. Quote, we have a report of the birth of your child, July 30th, 1923, signed by Mary Gilden, midwife. She says that you are white and that the father of the child is white. We have a correction to the certificate sent to us from the city health department at Lynchburg, in which they say that the father of the child is a Negro. This is to give you warning that this is a mulatto child and you cannot pass it off as white. A new law passed by the last legislature says that if a child has one drop of Negro blood in it, it cannot be counted as white. You will have to do something about this matter and see that this child is not allowed to mix with white children. It cannot go to white schools and can never marry a white person in Virginia. It is an awful thing, end quote. In 1927, the federal government gave its full endorsement of the eugenics movement when the Supreme Court and Buck v. Bell upheld the government's right to sterilize the unfit. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in his conclusion, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough.
1: And if we can take an aside here, the influence of the American eugenics movement, considered the foremost eugenics movement in the world, extended far beyond the country's shores. American lawyer and eugenicist Madison Grant's 1916 book, The Passing of the Great Race, advocated for the segregation of unfit races into authoritarian ruled ghettos which would be run by the Public Health Service. Adolf Hitler would later write to Grant that this book was his Bible. September of 1927, found Charles Davenport in Berlin, giving one of the commemorating addresses at the grand opening of the Institute of Anthropology, Human Hereditary, and Genetics. This institute was to be the center of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes in Germany, that both created the scientific justification and mapped out the Holocaust. After the Nazis rise to power, the Rockefeller Foundation would become the critical supplier of funds to these institutes, particularly favoring the work of Dr. Utmar Verschur and his research assistant and colleague, Dr. Joseph Mengele.
0: Famously known as the Angel of Death, he was the doctor at the Auschwitz concentration camp who oh, would shit. Uh, okay. dissect twins.
1: Fuck what?
0: Yeah, uh, funded by the Rockefellers, <laughs> the Jesus, Rockefeller Institute. Dude. Yep.
1: <laughs> um,
0: yeah. weird. You don't hear about that in history class. <laughs> 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 like he's like literally the most infamous Nazi. <laughs> like wow. instead of like Hitler and I guess Goebbels or something. Like yeah, uh,
1: right. As investigative journalist Edwin Black put it, "quote." During the first two decades of the 20th century, America had shown Germany the way, treating the struggling German eugenics movement with both parental fascination and Nordic admiration.
0: It's important to note that there was immediate pushback against the eugenics movement and what it termed its race hygiene policies. A 1915 editorial in the San Francisco Daily News attacked the eugenics movement stating, quote, The old Spartans, with war always in view, used to destroy at birth boys born with decided physical weakness. Some of our present-day eugenicists go further and damn children before their birth because of parents criminally inclined. Then we have eugenic defectives in the insane and incurably diseased. The proposition is not wholly without justification, but isn't there another sort of defective who's quite as dangerous as any? but whom discussion generally overlooks, especially discussion by the senile, long-haired pathologists and long-eared college professors involved in the Harriman Rockefeller's scheme to sterilize. A boy is born to millions. He either doesn't work, isn't useful, doesn't contribute to human happiness, is altogether a parasite, or else he works to add to his millions with the brutal, insane greed for more and more that caused the accumulation of the inherited millions. Why isn't such the most dangerous defective of all? Why isn't the prevention of more such progeny the first duty of eugenics? Such defectives directly attack the rights, liberties, happiness, and lives of millions. Talk about inheriting criminal tendencies. Is there a ranker case of such than the inheritance of standard oil criminality as evidenced in the slaughter of mothers and their babes at Ludlow? Sterilization of hundreds of thousands of the masses by the Harrimans and Rockefellers? Let's first try out the defectiveness of the sons of billionaires. Let's first sterilize where sterilization will mean something. Far-reaching and thorough in the way of genuine eugenics.
1: With the arrival of the railroad in 1881, El Paso, a town on the westernmost edge of Texas, became a surging center for transportation, labor, and mining in the southwest. Situated on the U.S.-Mexico border from its sister city of Ciudad Juarez, El Paso was the most important immigration station along the Mexican border by 1907. With its increasing importance to the economy of the region came white migration to the city and growing racial anxieties. As immigration officer Marcus Braun told the El Paso Herald in 1905, El Paso had become a backdoor through which, quote, diseased criminal and other classes of immigrants who have failed to get in through the regular ports were streaming into the United States. As historian Alexandra Mina Stern notes... The voice of science and medicine was used to sanction racial difference, with sanitary officials at the turn of the 20th century using the language of dirt and morbidity to temporarily distance Mexico and Mexicans from the United States.
0: The use of public health concerns to achieve the political goals of racial and class segregation in American cities was a common motif in American politics during the progressive era. In los angeles concerns over tuberculosis were used to ban entry of mexican laborers into the city and to ghettoize those that were already there in san francisco belief that the chinese carried disease and therefore had to be socially isolated led to the creation of chinatown an asian ghetto within the city proper and even to debates about walling in the neighborhood and creating their own internal immigration system in seattle an outbreak of bubonic plague in 1907 And concerns over tuberculosis led to the torching of Shacktown, the slum district of the city, by health officials.
1: In El Paso, the connection being drawn between race, hygiene, and disease led to the creation of a disinfection plant on the Santa Fe Bridge connecting El Paso and Juarez. The plant's construction was overseen by Claude Pierce, a eugenicist who sat at the top of the U.S. Public Health Service hierarchy. Alexandra Mina Stern describes the facility,
0: quote, in a special report that included photographs of four different points at the quarantine plant, the station for the sterilization of clothes, the entryway alongside the bridge where Mexicans waited to be deloused, the yard and the women's shower room. Pierce described the process by which medical inspectors scrutinized, differentiated and then cleansed the multitudinous bodies that crossed the International Bridge. Stating definitively that all persons coming to El Paso from Mexico, considered as likely to be vermin infested, are sent through this plant for disinfection. Pierce explained that upon entering the building, the individuals were segregated by sex and forced to strip naked. While their clothing was being chemically scoured in a laundering that took about 30 minutes, each scalp was examined by a male or female attendant, as the sex requires, for lice, the vectors of typhus fever. Those found to have lice were specially treated. Quote, the hair of the men or boys was clipped with number zero clippers, the hair dropping on a newspaper, which was then rolled up and burned. Women with head lice had a mixture of equal parts of kerosene and vinegar applied to the head and hair for half an hour with a towel covering the head. After delousing, all persons were then directed into sex segregated showers where they were sprayed with a mixture of soap, kerosene and water. An attendant directed and observed this entire process, after which the immigrants were vaccinated for smallpox if deemed necessary. At the end of these arbitrary rights, individuals were given back their now sterilized clothing and in compensation for their ordeal were entitled to a signed certificate of the United States Public Health Service Mexican border quarantine, verifying that the bearer had been deloused, bathed, vaccinated, and all clothing and baggage disinfected. The passage was not complete, however, for the immigrants still had to be assayed for possible exclusion due to physical or mental defects. By
1: 1917, the disinfection station at the Santa Fe Bridge was inspecting 2,830 people per day, or about 236 people per hour. By contrast, at Ellis Island, public health officials were inspecting only 350 people per day, with six times the staff.
0: In 1904, the railroad reached Brownsville, a town at the southernmost tip of Texas. As historian Benjamin Johnson notes, quote, For the daily lives of Tejanos, 1904 was more of a turning point than 1848. The connection that the railroad represented fatally undermined the social and political accommodations the Anglos and Tejanos had maintained for the previous six decades.
1: The railroad brought with it an agricultural and real estate boom. People from all over the United States were enticed to try their hand at farming in the rich soil of the Rio Grande Valley. Johnson describes the efforts, Before the railroad, unimproved pasture land sold from $0.50 to $2 an acre. By 1912, undeveloped land cost between $100 and $300 an acre. Inability to pay property taxes led to a dramatic increase in the number of sheriff's sales of tax delinquent lands in Hidalgo County, sales that almost always transferred land from the Tejanos to Anglos. The combination of economic pressure, title changes, and outright violent appropriation led to significant Tejano land loss shortly after the railroad's construction. From 1900 to 1910, Hispanic-surnamed individuals lost a total of more than 187,000 acres in Cameron and Hidalgo counties. And with their increased presence, Anglos began to consolidate their political power in the region and at the expense of recently displaced Tejanos. All along the Texas-Mexico border, racial and economic tensions were forming, a powder keg waiting for a spark.
0: After 1848, Mexico entered nearly a century of political turmoil. By 1862, after a string of coups, civil wars, and losses of land, including large portions of Central America, Texas, and the near loss of the Yucatan Peninsula in a Mayan peasant revolt, Mexico was in shambles and indebted to the Prince President of France, Napoleon III. Unable to pay, Napoleon III used Mexico's foreign debt delinquency as a casus belli to invade the country. With support from Mexican conservative Catholic elites, Napoleon occupied Mexico City and installed an Austrian archduke, Ferdinand Maximilian, and his wife, Carlotta, as emperor and empress. Maximilian's reign was short-lived, however, as Mexican liberals fought back in a five-year guerrilla war that handed a defeat to the French quasi-monarch, ending French colonialism in the Americas. The guerrilla forces were backed by the U.S. North, with New England weapons manufacturers advancing guns and military equipment to rebels on credit, further indebting Mexico after the rebels took back the country, the price of regaining power.
1: As the economy in the United States post-Civil War began to boom, U.S. creditors, arms dealers, and financial houses were demanding repayment from Mexico while merchants claimed commerce was being disrupted in Mexico City because of lack of protection. U.S. mining companies insisted the liberals in Mexico recognize land grants given by Maximilian III, the despot they had just overthrown to American mining operations. Mexican liberals rejected most of these claims, while powerful American business and finance capital called on Washington to either establish a, quote, protectorate, or just seize and annex Mexico entirely. Mexican liberals found themselves in the same predicament as before Maximilian III, but this time the loan sharks were next door, their knocks growing louder each day.
0: The pressure of American capital breathing down Mexico's neck for debt repayment, along with the promise of more loans and foreign investment to build railroads, was too much for Mexico to handle. They had to fold. Backed into a corner, Mexico handed the national economy over to private U.S. investors. With facilitation by President Porfirio Diaz, Mexico was effectively owned by some of the most storied names in U.S. corporate history, including J.P. Morgan, John Rockefeller and Standard Oil, Edward Harriman, the Astors, the Guggenheims, Allen and John Foster Dulles' great-grandfather, Joseph Hitley Dulles, William Randolph Hearst, Phelps Dodge, Union Pacific, and Cargill. U.S. Capitol radically transformed Mexico. Porfirio Diaz, the politician who dominated Mexican politics in the late 19th century, would later tell an interviewer, poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States.
1: Greg Grandin describes the scene. Quote, to revolutionize became a popular phrase during this period in the U.S. press. Much like the verb to disrupt today signals the creation of new markets by breaking up old production practices. U.S. agricultural firms were, as one report noted in 1899, moving across the border into Mexico, and they were revolutionizing and will continue to revolutionize the farming methods of the country within half a century. The United States' interests would come to control nearly absolutely oil production, railroads, utilities, livestock, agriculture, and ports. Almost all of Mexico's exports—wheat, beef, hennikin, minerals, and petroleum—went to the United States. And a good percentage of U.S. manufactured goods went to Mexico. Everything from artificial limbs to surgical supplies, from paints, pianos, and preserves to safes, stoves, and sewer pipes, from heavy machinery to acids and oils, and every finished product in between was exported south.
0: Although Mexico had outlawed chattel slavery, the seizure of Mexico by U.S. capital and the rapid expansion of export agriculture brought forced labor and mass expulsion back to the country. Over 10,000 Yaqui Indians were driven away from their homes in Sonora and were deported to Yucatan and Oaxaca, where they were forced to work on sugar, tobacco, and henequen plantations. Large corporations then stole newly vacant land in Sonora and turned it into export plantations, making it one of the most profitable Mexican states for U.S. investment, second only to the oil-rich Veracruz. By
1: 1900, Over 90% of communal lands were sold with an estimate of 9.5 million peasants forced off their lands and into the service of land-owning barons. Tens of thousands more died in the assault. U.S. Capitol's reign in Mexico rivaled the brutality of Jackson's Indian Removal Act. It was this moment that solidified the transformation of U.S. capital replacing settlers as the primary instrument of imperial expansion. Imperialism was becoming the highest stage of capitalism.
0: Tensions in Mexico were coming to a boil. In 1910, Porfirio Diaz had his rival Francisco Madero imprisoned ahead of the presidential election. After Diaz declared an overwhelming victory, an obvious fraud, Madero escaped from prison and drew up a manifesto arguing that the 80-year-old Diaz could only be removed through force of arms. An uprising ensued, forcing Diaz to flee to Spain in 1911. Two years later, Madero would be overthrown and executed in a U.S.-backed military coup that installed installed the Mexican general, Victoriano Huerta, in his place. Once in power, the U.S. refused to officially acknowledge Huerta's regime as Mexico descended into a bitter civil war.
1: As U.S. capital continued to violently exploit Mexico, a Mexican national front began to form. Peasants, students, the middle class, and even national capitalists launched what turned out to be a violent, wild, multi-fronted insurgency – They waged war on all fronts, including class, religion, and culture. Peasant farmers rose up against planters, burning plantations and triumphing. Secularists against Catholics. Workers striking and halting production against owners, sacking their factories, flooding the mines and seizing production. Oil rigs, which grew to pump one of Mexico's most important commodities, were seized and nationalized. The nationalist movement grew and triumphed in 1915, and in what historian John Mason Hart describes as, quote, the first great third world uprising against American economic, cultural, and political expansion. Mexicans were back in charge, this time in a national revolutionary spirit. The Mexican Constitution of 1917 was a truly remarkable document. Historians Benjamin Keane and Keith Haynes describe its content.
0: President Venustiano Carranza had asked only that the federal government be empowered to enact labor legislation. The convention went much further. The Finnish article, a true labor code, provided for the eight-hour day, secured childbirth benefits for women, including paid prenatal and postnatal maternity leaves, required companies that had more than 50 women employees to provide on-site childcare abolished the tienda de rea, or company store, and debt servitude, guaranteed the right of workers to organize, bargain collectively, and strike, and granted many other rights and privileges, making it the most advanced labor code in the contemporary world. Article 27, which dealt with property rights, had an equally advanced character. It proclaimed the nation the original owner of all lands, waters, and the subsoil. The state could expropriate them, only with compensation to the owners. National ownership of the water and subsoil was inalienable, but individuals and companies could obtain concessions for their exploitation. Foreigners to whom that privilege was granted must agree that they would not invoke the protection of their governments in regard to such concessions. Of prime importance were the same article's agrarian provisions. It declared that all measures passed since 1856 that alienated ajitos, or communal lands, were null and void. If the pueblos needed more land, they could acquire it by expropriation from neighboring haciendas. These and other provisions of the Constitution of 1917 made it the most progressive law code of its time. It laid legal foundations for a massive assault on the Latifundia, which just means large landed interests, for weakening the power of the church and for regulating the operations of foreign capital in Mexico. But the Constitution was not anti-capitalist. It sanctioned and protected private property, and it sought to control rather than eliminate foreign enterprises, creating the more favorable conditions for the development of national capitalism.
1: Back in the United States in 1915, inspired by the Mexican Revolution, A group of fed-up Mexican workers in the Rio Grande Valley launched a series of raids that would escalate into a guerrilla war against Anglo settlement in the region. Historian Benjamin Johnson describes the scene, "...groups of armed men, some from across the Rio Grande, others seemingly from out of nowhere, stole livestock, burned railroad bridges, tore up tracks, killed farmers, attacked post offices, robbed stores, and repeatedly battled local posses, Texas Rangers, and thousands of federal soldiers dispatched to quell the violence.
0: The Texas Rangers responded with a counterinsurgency campaign lifted right out of the occupation of the Philippines. Tejanos in the Rio Grande Valley were harassed and their homes searched. Suspect Tejanos were rounded up and put in temporary camps. And a campaign of mass violence and murder was undertaken. The San Antonio Express wrote that, quote, finding of dead bodies of Mexicans suspected for various reasons of being connected with the Troubles has reached a point where it creates little or no interest. The Laredo Times was more to the point. The recent happenings in Brownsville country indicate that there is a serious surplus population that needs eliminating. The group refusing to forget describes the violence. Quote, The dead included women and men, the aged and the young, longtime residents and recent arrivals. They were killed by strangers, by neighbors, by vigilantes, and at the hands of local law enforcement officers or Texas Rangers. Some were summarily executed after being taken captive or shot under the flimsy pretense of trying to escape. Some were left in the open to rot, others desecrated by being burnt, decapitated, or tortured by means such as having beer bottles rammed into their mouths.
1: The violence was amplified by the discovery of the Plan de San Diego, a political manifesto whose origin is, to put it mildly, of some debate. Discovered on a prisoner in early 1915, the plan set as its goals the reconquest of all of Mexico's pre-1848 territories, including the state of Texas. But most incendiary, it called for the Black, Asian, and Mexican people to carry out a war against Anglos, calling for the execution of all white males over the age of 16.
0: (laughs) This play was written on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) In return, Black Americans would receive six states of their own, adjoining the reclaimed Mexican territory. Some speculate that the plan was written by Mexican President Venustiano Carranza and employed to convince the U.S. to help him consolidate his rule in Mexico. Others, that it was written by Victoriano Huerta in order to build support for his faction in the Civil War. Others, that it was an anarchist plot or that it was just made up out of whole cloth. The main takeaway is that it was ridiculous but it helped fuel the connection between the conflict on the U.S.-Mexico border and the new racial order.
0: On the evening of March 6, 1916, there were 20 or so prisoners in the El Paso County Jail, almost all of whom were Mexican. David Starr Jordan, prominent American eugenicist and close friend of Charles Davenport, was visiting El Paso to take stock of the increasingly volatile situation at the border. He described what happened next, quote, On March 6, a number of these Mexicans, some 20 I am told, were in jail in El Paso. Part of them probably bearing lice. All were given a bath in gasoline. Someone lit a match, and the affair known as the Holocaust occurred. All were burned alive with the building, and it is said two or three American hobos. This the mayor called an unavoidable accident, but the Mexicans and Juarez believed that it was done deliberately. The word came to Villa, and three days later, he raided Columbus. Villa declared beforehand that he was going to make torches of every American he found. It's not entirely clear if Pancho Villa really did hear the news of the jailhouse fire, and that led him to his raid in Columbus, New Mexico. But rumors flew around El Paso, leading to a race riot in the city.
1: The unrest went both ways, however. Mexican workers had grown tired of the degrading treatment they faced at the disinfection plant. Along with being forced to strip nude and submit to inspection before being bathed in kerosene, workers were subject to jeers and were spat on by local authorities as they crossed the Santa Fe Bridge. Women had photos of them taken while they were undressed, photos that authorities then distributed at local bars. In January of 1917, Carmelita Torres, a 47-year-old domestic worker who lived in Mexico and crossed the border each day to clean the houses of El Paso's wealthy Anglo families, refused to submit to inspection and disinfection. Rather than simply leave and return to Mexico, she urged other Mexican workers to refuse inspection as well, gathering a group of 200 women with her. The El Paso Times wrote, quote, From the time streetcars began to run until the middle of the afternoon, thousands of Mexicans thronged the Juarez side of the river and pushed out to the toll gate on the bridge. Woman ringleaders of the mob hurled stones at American civilians, both on the bridge and on the streets of Juarez. The bath riots continued for days before U.S. troops stationed in El Paso were able to restore the status quo. The disinfection regime was restarted and would last until 1927, but the border as a place of economic and racial conflict was firmly established.
0: Along with Jim Crow, lynching, and eugenics, the Progressive Era also gave us the second birth of the Ku Klux Klan. Inspired by the release of Birth of a Nation, the revisionist film sprawled with quotes from Woodrow Wilson's History of the United States, glorifying the Klan and racist violence, A group of 25 men met at Stone Mountain, Georgia, and planned the rebirth of the KKK on Thanksgiving Day in 1915.
1: Perhaps because racist violence was increasingly committed out in the open, two of the most infamous lynchings in U.S. history would occur after the Klan's rebirth in Waco, Texas in 1916 and Duluth, Minnesota in 1920. The shadowy, secretive organization did not immediately catch on. That is, until they hired a public relations firm to help them relaunch in 1920.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They literally fucking hired a PR firm. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) This is the most American story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Reorganized as a pyramid scheme, membership in the organization exploded to 4.5 million by 1924. The Klan was especially popular on the West Coast. A raid on the Klan headquarters in Inglewood revealed that roughly 10% of the public officials and police in every California city were members of the Klan.
0: But that's very shocking to hear.
1: Yeah, <laughs> what a never thought.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Anaheim in Orange County was so thoroughly staffed with the Klan and Klan-adjacent public officials that it took on a moniker Klanaheim. In Seattle... 20,000 people turned out for a Klan event just outside of Renton in 1923, and again in 1924. But Portland, Oregon was the jewel of the Klan's downline empire. Beginning with 9,000 members in 1920, Portland's Klan grew so rapidly that there was a brief discussion about moving the national offices from Birmingham to Portland. In 1925, the Klan led a march of 50,000 members in full regalia through the streets of Washington, D.C., with no resistance from state officials. Yeah, again, shocking.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Man, it'd be crazy if there was some sort of comparison that you could draw (laughs) to today. Uh, With the rise of increasingly racist and nativist sentiment among the academic and professional classes with eugenics and the police and local politicians with the Klan came a demand for a strictly regulated immigration system. The 1924 Immigration Act married the scientific racism developed by the Rockefellers, Harrimans, and Carnegies with the general attack against labor under the guise of fighting the foreign specter of communism and anti-immigrant bigotry. Eugenicist Charles Davenport was brought in as a special expert advisor to Congress during the immigration debate to draw connections between the foreign ideology of communism and the lesser races. Under particular attack were Eastern European Jews who were determined to be both genetically infantile and master political insurgents bent on the spread of communism.
1: The connection between anti-communism and anti-Semitism was a given amongst economic elites in the U.S. during the 1920s. For example, Henry Ford had been working overtime since 1920 to connect anti-communism and anti-Semitism. In his company paper that was delivered to all Ford workers, the Dearborn Independent, Ford published a regular column on the dangers of the, quote, international Jew. In one of his articles in the Dearborn Independent, Ford wrote, quote, Between the lines, one reads the story of the Jewish communist movement in America, which seeks to make the United States what it had already made of Russia. For his dedication to the cause of anti-Semitism, Ford was awarded the Medal of the Grand Order of the Great Eagle of Germany by Hitler in 1938. On Ford's 75th birthday.
0: Right. Hilariously, his advisors told him not to go receive the award in person <laughs> or accept it, but he did, anyways. He was like, Nope, I got this, this
1: is my moment. I've been Gotta working go. all my life for
0: this. Which, I mean, it would have been totally reasonable to just not go, right? Because he's 75 years old. And I mean, traveling that distance at that time, it's like,
1: that's a toll. Yeah.
0: But he like, literally risked his life to go meet Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> My God. The 1924 Immigration Act would expand on the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, formalizing the regular practice of denying entrance to non white immigrants, as well as greatly limiting the immigration rights of Eastern Europeans. Cloaked in extreme anti Semitism, these quotas were designed to keep out those that might have been tainted by the Russian Revolution. They also provided further justification for the deportation of political radicals.
1: The act did not place a limit on Mexican migration across the U.S.-Mexico border, however. This was thanks to the lobbying of delegates from Texas. In contrast to the nativist hysterics around, quote, race suicide, gripping many in the country, agricultural interests along the southwestern border demanded continued access to cheap labor from Mexico. A carve-out was made to provide them with that access. The Immigration Act also sought to solve the issue of who would regulate the U.S.-Mexico border when a Texas congressman and former Texas ranger, Cloud Hudspeth, attached a rider to the bill allocating $1 million for the establishment of a, quote, land border patrol. The allocation led to the creation of the U.S. Border Patrol. The Border Patrol took the expense of maintaining order on the border out of the hands of the local landed interests along the border who defined what order was and placed it on the American taxpayer. This allowed for a much greater and more consistent allocation of resources along the U.S.-Mexico border. The federal imprimatur also allowed the new agency to distance itself from the legacy of the Texas Rangers and their ilk in the eyes of the Tejanos along the border. This distancing was in name only, however. After the 1919 Senate investigations into Ranger violence along the border, the Rangers were once again reduced in number. Former members quickly dispersed into local police and sheriff's departments, and in 1924, they joined the Border Patrol. Jefferson Davis Milton, son of a prominent family of Florida slave owners, was one of the new agency's first hires. Already 67 years old in 1924, Milton had joined the Texas Rangers in 1879, looking for adventure. After his stint in the Rangers, he fought in the Indian Wars and served several years as El Paso's chief of police before joining the immigration service of the Labor Department as Chinese inspector along the southwestern border of 1904. The son of a slave owner turned Texas Ranger and Chinese inspector, Milton embodied 67 years of racist reaction against the world that Reconstruction, at its best, tried to bring into being. It is therefore fitting that he is affectionately referred to as, quote, the father of the U.S. Border Patrol to this day.
0: Yeah, that fucking rocks. When I And honestly, like... I know a fair amount about like the history of the border patrol and like the border and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but when I came across this Jefferson Davis Milton, it was uh, this is an old movie that you definitely have never seen, but there's a movie called PCU where a guy's trying to write it. The, the premise is you can do anything you want in college. So he's writing a thesis about uh, these two actors and whether or not they're the same actor or whatever. <laughs> and then he's, he, he finally he's just watching their movies like nonstop. and He finally sees a movie that they're in together and he's like this is my thesis and when jefferson davis and milton showed up i was like this is our thesis in a man
1: (laughs) just just a laundry list of like chinese inspector like that that is just like so comically
0: bad (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i mean it it is one of those interesting things we don't really think about it but uh, there was a lot of after 1882 there was a lot of uh chinese immigration through mexico into the united states uh leading to actually like in mexicali which is on the california mexico border uh there's actually like a large chinese district where you can get uh sort of mexican chinese food essentially right oh wow where you can get chinese food with mexican characteristics <laughs> uh, and the thing is is that dates back to the late 19th century because it was a major crossing point for uh chinese migrants and It was also a place where they would get deported sometimes too mm. um you know very interesting um but yeah i mean Speaking, you know, of uh, afterwards and whatnot, you know, I thought we might catch up with some of our friends here (laughs) now that we've (laughs) got the story of the border uh, and our friends in the the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, The, the Klan is such an interesting story in this time period. And the thing that makes it interesting is that it just didn't need to exist. Right, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, the reason why the Klan existed during Reconstruction was that federal troops occupied the South, and if you got caught doing the kind of things the Klan was doing, you know, you could be potentially even executed by federal right. troops, right? right. And that's why they wore sheets and masks and you know that's why it was a secret society. But the thing is, all the things the Klan was doing in the South in the 1860 18- you know the 1870s and 1880s, was now just free game in the united States. it was like Anybody open
1: season the whole yeah. time
0: yeah like, you know mayors governors etc were all engaging in lynchings without any mass or anything like that having photos taken out they would take postcards at lynchings of prominent officials with the corpses and would then sell them as like fundraisers right i mean everything was possible <laughs> you could do whatever you wanted and so the clan hilariously like because the country had become so racist, actually, the Klan didn't really need to exist. There was no way.
1: real motor function for the Klan Yeah, at that point.
0: And so they did what ever anybody would do in America if you have a failing brand, which is hired a PR firm. Yeah. And the PR <laughs> firm told them, look, if Americans want to kill a black person or whatever, uh, they, they don't need robes anymore to do it. You could just do that on Main Street and nobody will care. Uh, in fact, you know, it'll probably draw, they'll just be mad that you didn't draw a crowd around when you did it, right? Right. Uh, so we have to go with something else Americans love, and that's pyramid schemes. <laughs> and they basically, what the clan became was they would, uh, you would hire recruits. So say you become a, a clan recruiter, right? What you want to do is you want to start selling memberships to the organization, which you'll sell for $10 a piece, of which you'll receive $4, and then you'll kick the rest up the ladder, right? Now, initially, you know, this sounds like a good deal, but it's a lot of work. You got to run around, you know, chasing after people to get them to join. But think about this. Once you recruit somebody, you get them to recruit three guys under them. All right, and they're kicking it all the way up, and you get a taste as it goes up the ladder, right? And those three guys if they recruit three guys under them, right? It, and basically, they literally just created a pyramid scheme <laughs> with all the attendant effects, which it was a giant money maker. So, all the like members of the clay, all the members of the club that were in any sort of leadership position, most importantly a treasury position, just started mm. stealing money from the organization immediately. Okay? <laughs> 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 the head of the clan at Birmingham 2 also tried to copyright being in the clan, so he would try and like legally attack. like people if you tried to form your own independent clan organization he would try and sue you yeah right right (laughs) because he wasn't getting it. he wasn't getting a taste you know so so it
1: became like a brand and like intellectual property almost
0: yeah and so in 1924 across there was actually a series of exposés across the country that basically revealed what had been rumored and people kind of already knew which was that there was like this was a giant graft like organization. And that also there was massive embezzlement <laughs> at the top <laughs> and everything like that. It's so like in in Portland, the uh, head of the clan treasury, it eventually became public and stolen. Like most of the dues <laughs> from, <laughs> from the organization and the clan just sort of fell apart. Right. Because once the pyramid scheme kind of, once the bubble burst, there was no like reason for it to exist anymore. And I, that is sometimes depicted by uh, some historians who, if you go back to our episode on, you know, the progressive era and what does it mean? Uh, you, you might be able to figure out who I'm talking about, but some <laughs> historians <laughs> had depicted this as some sort of victory of liberalism that, oh, well, the Klan wasn't as uh, violent as maybe you might have guessed and, like, you know, it was largely... And it, it, it largely vanished in the 20s. But that really loses the larger picture of the world the Klan existed in at the time, which was infinite all the racism and violence he needed was just available. <laughs> right. And so the Klan just didn't have the monopoly on it <laughs> that it once had. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's worse in a way. It's like the Klan was still extremely violent. It's just like, you know, the, it was not unique at all. And it wasn't even yeah. like subversive or pushing the envelope in any meaningful way because, you know, the United States at that time was just so far to that side already. That Yeah. The it, was had just, essentially, it, it was just existing as just, you know, uh, just another run of the mill. Yeah,
0: place. the politics of the clan had essentially won. And yeah, so what exactly. they were doing in the clan was essentially engaging in like uh, cosplay reenactments or something.
1: Yeah, yeah right.
0: Of things that uh, were just happening in a much more violent and open form all the time in the United States. Like in Tacoma, when they violently threw the Chinese out of the city, nobody bothered to put a mask on. yeah right they (laughs) they did it and they proudly talked about it you know and and proclaimed it right um and that that whole time period i mean the eugenics movement is case in point the things that university professors were plotting at their colleges were far more disturbing and disgusting than anything (laughs) this is how far the united states have moved on this whole Mm -hmm. issue and that really has an impact. I mean, the the stuff we're talking about how, like, they were, you know, they had plans to eliminate, like, the U.S. population 10% of the time. That sounds crazy, but they were actually doing it. And one of the things that they used to do was they created this whole curriculum for grade school teachers where they would have the students, they may have these little cards they give to students, and they'd go home and they'd fill out a family tree, right? And in that family tree, they wanted to know, like, where all the relatives were from. So the idea was go home, ask your grandparents where they came from and where their parents came from and things like that. And you were supposed to fill out this family tree. They then would ask the teachers to dutifully turn that family tree into the eugenics records office, which they would then use to racially classify, you know, millions of Americans. Right. I did that in elementary school holy shit this project still exists like the curriculum still exists you know they don't turn it into the records office anymore but it is this whole thing that nobody cared about until the records office started pushing it right and Mm. it's now it's ancestry.com it's a fucking industry now
1: yeah yeah exactly
0: (laughs) you know like they did fundamentally change the way americans think about race like in a very real way and that had real consequences and in the research for this episode, uh, I, I I was able to look up something that I probably shouldn't have looked up, and was able to <laughs> find found something I probably should have been able to find. But is you know sort of background, my uh, my mother's my mother's last parent died when I was probably like fourteen, and at some point, you know, after uh, my grandmother had died, we we're going through some photos, and there was this just photo of my mom and like this like older boy which i always thought my mom was the oldest of three right and in my mom's parents this is when they're kids and i asked my mom who's that kid and my mom goes oh that's my older brother quirky and i was like wait what the you have like a i have like another (laughs) uncle that you never brought up like ever and she's like oh and now i'm going to use some language that's indicative of the 1990s here but (laughs) she was said well, Corky was mentally retarded, so he was put in an institution in, in Indianapolis, uh, and then he died when I was young. Now, online, and I brought, and Corky was his nickname, by the way, and I'm not going to share his name, because you can actually find all this information online, and I don't necessarily want to share that. But yeah.
2: uh,
0: I was actually able to find his death certificate online, because it was wow. filed from a medical institution in the United States. And He had been, apparently from, you know, very early age, maybe birth even, had essentially been incarcerated at the Fort Wayne Institute for the Feeble-Minded. And if you go through the certificate, under cause of death, it just has one word, it just says asphyxia, 10 minutes next to it, 15 years old. And then for the contributing cause, it just says severe mental retardation, right now. Do people with severe handicaps die earlier? Yes. They were dying in these institutions, as we read at rates of like 30 to 40%, meaning they weren't dying in those institutions. They were being killed in those institutions. Like we were literally just eradicating these people, which by the way, I live two blocks from one of the state institutions in Washington state right now.
1: Oh oh my God.
0: Right. That was a tuberculosis hospital prior to being, you know, one of these institutions. And this is one of these things that I don't bring the story up to like try and claim some sort of uh, credit or anything. Like I imagine if you were to go through your family trees, like if, you know, the average American whose family has been in the States for, you know, a century or more went through your family trees. You're probably going to find some of this stuff is in there. I'm people literally I mean, I'll never know for sure about my mom's brother. But, Hmm. you know, there are lots of people who were essentially just eradicated. You know, over the first half plus of the 20th century. I mean, this happened in 1964. So over the first half plus of the 20th century, I mean,
1: it's like, it makes it very, it makes it very real. And it's not just like a subsect. It's like, it shows just how, how prevalent. And yeah, just like how prevalent it really was at that time.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really startling and incredible. Uh, We also know to this day that the California prison system has, coercively uh, sterilized women within its prison system. Uh, We know this is a thing that the prisons continue to do, you know. Um, It really can't can't be stated enough how much the eugenics movement changed how we think about race in this country and how devoted we still are to it. Now, just to give a quick note, uh, eugenics changed its name after world war ii for reasons and uh, became (laughs) genetics the number one research laboratory for genetics in the united states is cold spring harbors laboratory on long island so when you're fucking loving science every day just think about that for a second and ask yourself what do you think those freaks are really fucking doing over there yeah you know and it's not does not yeah it's not a coincidence that there's like you know a lot of the foundational scientists and genetics are all like malthusian fucking eugenic freaks uh you know that's literally the the like they're uh they're like the orcs being pulled out of the mud at fucking cold Spring yeah, Harbor. yeah. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> it, it does have a real like comic book villain ring to it but the fact that it was just so prevalent means that it's like it was just so even banal you know at yeah. the time like uh, which is just so shocking to me. Um,
0: yeah, if you yeah. go if you go into, uh, you know, if, if you're able to go look at a searchable database of, say, like, the Seattle Times or the New York Times or whatever, just find a local paper. I'll do the New York Times. Find, like, a local paper, like Seattle Times. Just go, like, 1900 to 1938, right? And just search the word eugenics. And just look how casually they talk about these kind of things. Mm. Eugenics, race, suicide, etc. It was just no, this is, this is the science of the day. This is what everybody believes, you know, and uh, people, you know, we're, we're going to put a little bonus reading uh, about this, about the plan in Connecticut that was launched by uh, Harry Laughlin and Charles Davenport to, you know, s- cleanse the population of Connecticut. Uh, we'll put that as a little bonus here uh, in a day or two. But they they were going to carry out some Nazi level shit in this country and they got damn close to doing it in a lot of places. And they killed a lot of people in the process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean like the fact that, I mean like the ties between the U S and like Nazi Germany at that time, like how, I guess like even like how like financially tied, not just like the state, but also like, you know, like capitalists in the, in Mm. the U S were, you know, very interested in, um, you know, the Nazi project, it almost seemed like, you know, from what we talked about that, um, you know, Hitler was really inspired by the eugenics work, uh, in the States before it. And that almost it like preceded, um, you know, like Hitler and the Holocaust and everything too.
0: Yeah. Interestingly, I mean, the United States was considered to be at the forefront of u- the eugenics movement, as we mentioned, and Nazi doctors, uh, in their literature, all of which was presented at Nuremberg, uh would reference the American eugenics movement as, you know, a precursor to what they were doing all the time. I mean, this is in their internal documentation to each other. They were clearly uh, very much in admiration of the American movement. Now, the funny thing was, is when after the Nazis took power and they created their first set of racial codes, right, or race laws, uh, you know, because you have to create, you have to make some sort of legal in, in a modern liberal society, which fascist Germany was, you do have am i being liberal in like the general sense not like fucking democrats and republicans or whatever yeah yeah. but you you have to create a legal structure around repression right this is a a trademark of modern governments right uh so they have to determine who is what race right on some level you have to create a a yardstick and it came up in the conference that they should just adopt the american the american model right because the united states already done this and they could just you know point to that as precedent and use it. And they agreed that the American model of one drop of black blood makes you black was too extreme for Nazi oh. Germany. <laughs> it backed off and created their own model, uh, which was Holy a little more shit. lenient. Uh but yeah, I mean every step of the way of the Nazi Nazi project, all the way down to things like mobile gas chambers, which had been suggested at an American Eugenics Conference in 1910. Uh, to eradicate people efficiently, right, came basically, it it had been mapped out by the American eugenics movement. And something to keep in mind when we talk about the Rockefeller Foundation funding research in Nazi Germany, there were periods once, you know, after 1938, where the U.S. Congress stepped in and basically said, like, look, uh, you know, nobody can do business with Nazi Germany, right? It's a belligerent nation in a war that we're not trying to get dragged into. So all business with Nazi Germany, got to stop. This is very typical, no. like shit, right? The Rockefeller Foundation went to great lengths to then continue funneling money to hide the fact that they were continually funneling money. Into Nazi Germany for these race projects, right? For these eugenics projects, Meaning, because because
1: John Rockefeller was just so committed to the idea yeah, of yeah, eugenics, I mean, because, yeah.
0: yeah. Because the the you know you can read the Rockefellers' commitment and the Harrimans' commitment and the Carnegies' commitment to all this as the capitalist class's commitment to race theory and mm-hmm. the logical endpoint of race theory, which is what a bunch of capitalist classes around the world were all coming to. And by the late 1930s, in which the Germans were the only one, were the ones who took it the furthest, but every nation's capitalist class was coming to the same end point, right? Right, And, right. you know, and so, yeah, they were, you know, the Rockefellers went to considerable lengths to hide the fact, although, you know, not well enough, obviously, that they were continuing to fund these institutes that by that point were not only actively sterilizing people, but putting people in camps yeah uh just really horrific shit
1: yeah oh my god yeah that's weird
0: now this comes up in history class huh
1: yeah that is mind-boggling that yeah (laughs) just kind (laughs) of not even brought up uh. Yeah.
0: yeah, and that is even and we won't even get into the myriad US corporations who literally were operating in Nazi Germany throughout the war. <laughs> or the fact that the GM got GM got the US government to uh give them compensation for a GM plant that got bombed in Nazi Germany by US bombers. God, that <laughs> After is the so war, the incredible. They uh, sued the US government to get money back.
1: Not my plant. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean like okay. IBM like Supplying the technological infrastructure for uh, Nazi Germany to, uh, <laughs> like, you know.
0: So, yeah, I mean, the plan that uh, Harry Laughlin and Charles Davenport tried to launch in Connecticut uh, to cleanse the population of Connecticut. Uh, Part of the plan was that they wanted to build a infrastructure just like Nazi Germany was building of IBM punch cards to track the population and all this kind of stuff, right? You know, to to index the population, who's going to go. And part of the reason why the plan got stalled was the IBM was printing so many punch cards for Nazi Germany. They just didn't have the like
1: There's time no or production space for... to get it
0: to Connecticut. Oh. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah.
1: So- I mean, like, and as someone who works in technology, I think about this a lot and feel passionately about it because, I don't know, like, I feel like, you know, today when we talk about now, like, you know, the U.S. Border Patrol or, you know, police departments, a lot of these, uh, I guess, like modern day parallels to, uh, you know, what we saw in eugenics and, um, you know, Nazi Germany, these like oppressive forces um, are, it do depend on, you know, large uh, technology corporations to give them technological infrastructure right that's it's the same with punch cards still like you know databases there's a whole um there's a whole market and industry stream to provide these you know to dep- provide these departments with um, you know the technology they need to carry out these actions right and like yeah. you know it, it just it feels like a direct, parallel in many ways whether it's like facial recognition contracts contracts just for like database tracking uh all of these things and you know even like legacy communication and legacy emails like all of those things are sold as like technology like you know suites and packages to these things and it's like that's the outrage that I think a lot of people are shocked that people like give over how IBM could possibly partner with Nazis. I kind of raise my eyebrows a little bit because it's like, what are our U S um, technology companies doing with, you know, immigrations and customs enforcement today, right? Yeah. What, what are they doing with the U S border patrol? What are they doing with local police departments or the yeah. FBI um, and, or the and, department of defense?
0: And even internationally, uh, you know, in Egypt, after the, uh, You know, when there was the big crackdown on protesters at Tahrir Square and people were rounded up, arrested, some killed, things like that, tortured, etc. It came out very quietly, particularly in the Seattle Times, uh, that the software that the Egyptian government had used to track down who they perceived to be the leaders of the unrest at Tahrir Square had been developed by Boeing and basically combed Facebook for you know, like keywords and whatever, so that you could find you know dissidents and things like that. As essentially a like a spy software by the <laughs> Boeing <laughs> made for hunting down dissidents, which Boeing had then promptly sold to, of course, regimes all over the world, who then promptly used it to round up and kill people. And I think that sometimes people like to portray those who caution maybe against some of the surveillance software as being luddites or something like that yeah right Uh, when in reality the history is all right there in front of you you know how it's going to be used come on you know and yeah and really on this show one of the things we've been doing is you know we're talking about american history but we've also been going through the evolution the creation evolution of race in america too and Mm what we've started with was this creation of the idea of blackness to justify a system of economic exploitation that was slavery. And what we've seen is that system evolve over, you know, a hundred years and now combining with new technologies of capitalist production and things like that, and opportunities created by crises of capitalism to create something truly terrifying and horrible, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the death machine that we're going to start talking about that gets created in the 1930s and in the interwar years. And, you know, as much as the U S likes to pat up on the back and pretend like it's the hero of world war two uh, it's capital's class is very much the villain of the story. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know? Most definitely. And I guess like, you know, on like going back to China and um, the anti Chinese laws, which I think are like kind of grossly underappreciated in, um, in U S history. I think also when we think about uh, just like the role of policing as well. When you think about like the prohibitionist era, you know we think about uh, how alcohol was like made in tubs. You know we celebrated mm-hmm. a little bit with like you know uh, speakeasy bars today and everything. Uh,
0: if we're if we're particularly bad at understanding American literature, we have uh, great Gatsby weddings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For those who really didn't get the book. <laughs>
1: The most like fantastic uh, display of not understanding the text. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, like the first like major like prohibitionist measure was um, the Halstead Act of 1914. And that was actually creating like a legal restriction of like OPM, heroin and cocaine. All were actually pretty legal at the time, openly used. <laughs> it wasn't that like, you know, the illegality of those drugs is relatively like a new phenomenon in like the past hundred years or so. And, you know, like, of course, as we know, like, you know, heroin and opium were used as medicine, like recreationally and everything. You could just get it. But that actually changed and it was driven like primarily by this like kind of like racial and racist character where as like Chinese immigrants were coming in, again, as we discussed above, it was largely men and Mm -hmm. laborers who were the, uh, immigrants. Um, and the drug opium was largely associated with, um, Chinese laborers. Um, and it it didn't really gain much, uh, notoriety or really attention at all until upper middle class and middle class white women. uh,
0: <laughs> also, were, history's villain. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> if you want to talk about a villain, uh, <laughs> they were obtaining him in what they, of what, you know, like the general white populace were calling shady Chinatown opium dens. Of course, like the racists, like racial purists, xenophobes, all of those, they were just shocked that these middle class and upper middle class white women were were hanging out in these like Chinese opium dens with these lesser Chinese people right and the illegality of it was to essentially quell and uh, stymie race mixing or the perceived race mixing specifically white women mixing with other races other than white men and then subjugate and punish Chinese workers who basically, you know, did not have any legal rights in courts or anything. They were just like, became this hyper-exploited class through the prohibition of of these drugs, right? And so like, it, it's it's really interesting how it wasn't just made illegal for just a purpose of like public health or that these drugs are bad and plaguing society, but it, it, it actually... Was a specific vehicle used to quell the constant theme of the racist idea of white womanhood, uh, mm-hmm. just that idea in general, one, but two, specifically white womanhood getting tainted by mm. the lesser races, right? And like the the lengths of defense that are um, drawn to prevent that social order from being broken and it has to be done by authoritarian force. I think that kind of shows and proves that this order is something that's super unnatural, right? Mm. Because as you have to have these strict measures in place and have to teach these ideas and instill them by violent force in order for them to actually even be accepted, or else, you know, you'd have like middle class women, you know, just going into opium dens or whatever, you know, or, yeah. you know, hanging out with black people or, you know, living next to them. It's the it, it feels like it's almost adjacent to what we were talking about and what we're going to be talking about with, you know, with segregation. Mm-hmm. It, it's the same type of logic to me where like you're just like justifying like harassment, and tight, like very tight, like social regulation, like, you know of like suspect populations but that has to be done with like extreme use of force and authority
0: yeah and the interesting thing about this you know drug law in the halstead act is it also sort of reveals the tendrils of you know capitalist empire right and why is the united states getting this large you know immigration movement of chinese to the united states right it's not like it's it's not like it's close right like it's it's easy to understand why labor crosses the mexico u.s border Mm -hmm. a little harder to understand with the pacific ocean between us uh chinese migration and the answer is that british colonialism is busy enclosing and proletarianizing the country of china right and forcing the people of china into mass poverty which is causing an exodus from the imperial periphery to the core right mm-hmm. some of which the united states is getting the connection between chinese workers and opium which comes again because the british empire had flooded china with fucking opium yep. in order to fund its Literally wars in destroyed
1: India. like yeah. china's whole empire with with opium like deliberately
0: <laughs> yeah and you know Obviously, people can draw their own connections between the idea of an imperial power flooding a population with drugs
2: <laughs> in order to
0: fund wars on one hand and soften up the population on the other. You know, uh, you're not going to have to do too much of a look into U.S. history to to find some parallels there. But, you know, e- the 20th century, part of the reason why it's taken us so damn long to get through even just the first 20 years of the 20th century is all the pieces are coming together at this mm. point and and i hope that what people are gathering is that's creating something pretty fucking monstrous yeah in it's awake
1: <laughs> yeah and i guess like you know just like a little bit on the mexican revolution something that was super fascinating to me and also just like you know personally when reading grandin's book um you know i think just like chapter nine in general is just a really great chapter but you know my eyes definitely opened when when Brandon just straight up said that the economy was just handed over to, you know, the Rockefellers and JP Morgan and essentially just like, you know, ran wild with the entire uh, Mexican economy. That was just like very, very crazy and just kind of, you know, encapsulated just how, um, you know, explicit and what capital needs is expansion. And that is like a prime example of like, I mean, a total annihilation um, mm-hmm. of and and seizure of foreign assets for their own benefit and you know that's how you get rich frankly you know um, yeah.
0: Yeah. well it's it's the it's the perfect encapsulation of parent, michael parentis quote right uh you know imperial powers don't go to the third world because the third world is poor yeah, they go to the right. third world because the third world is rich and it's people and are poor because the so
1: there. rich yeah <laughs> yeah the people yeah. are poor yeah
0: mexico's a very resource rich country now we don't think about it that way in the united states because we're propagandized to think of mexico in a certain way but also because we see the effects of you know u.s meddling in mexico over you know 150 years uh on the people of mexico right and you know because in the United States we have blinders to the US, U.S. involvement in anything. We just look at that and say, that's their natural condition. Yeah. <laughs> that's you know. just how, just how it is. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's astonishing to see the wealth. And it also explains what ends up happening with the Mexican revolution, which is a series of very dumb political events essentially cause a powder keg in mexico to explode of resentment regarding you know mexico's position vis-a-vis the united states the exploitation the poverty to explode in, in 1911 and you know this is happening in places all over the world at this time you know mm-hmm. uh you know china i believe the boxer rebellion in china is like 1900 right uh the 1905 you know, revolution in Russia, right. To, to be <laughs> then succeeded by the 1917 <laughs> revolution yeah. in Russia. Right. <laughs> I mean, these kind of revolts are happening and it, it's sort of, it's a precursor to what we'll see is the anti-colonial movement in the post-World uh, War II era. Right. Mm-hmm. This is sort of a first wave and a big part of it is responding to, you know, the imperialist powers, exploitation of these people in their land. And, I think one of the things, you know, I don't have like the strongest grasp of Mexican history or whatever. And so one of the things that really shocked me going through some books was just the the sheer violence of the Mexican Civil War that leads to the Mexican Revolution, which is, you know, estimated to be about 900,000 dead in Mexico from oh this, this conflict, which is an incredible fucking figure. Like, can't still try to wrap my head around that a little, actually. Yeah. Uh, no, that, and, that
1: is insane.
0: Yeah, and the thing is, is that it wasn't just that people died in battles, although there's certainly battles. Um, a lot of that number of dead is people dying from, you know, American vigilantism across the frontier. It And a huge chunk of it is just people dying from the lack of resources, from the enforced poverty and the position of perilousness that capitalism and uh, enclosure had put the people of Mexico in by that point, right? They're in deep poverty. They didn't have access to resources on their own. And the second this instability happens, they are now on their own, right? Yeah, and already right. in pretty bad health, right? Uh, but the Mexican Revolution sort of, as we mentioned earlier, represents this attempt – to fight back against this imperial encroachment and to kind of, you know, add to this point, I mean, a lot of the promises of the Mexican Revolution remain you know, pretty much unrealized until the 1930s under the Cardenas regime, which does actually engage in massive land reform. Uh, It breaks up the Latifundia and, you know, hands it out to the Mexican peasantry, essentially, so they could do, you know, small farm farming for the first time and not work essentially as slaves on fucking farms. Uh, It nationalizes the oil industry. The Cardenas regime nationalizes Mexico's oil industry, which is huge.
1: Huge. Um, Yeah.
0: Nationalized the train lines in Mexico. Right. So they nationalize all transportation all things the United States never fucking forgave Mexico for, by the way. Mm -hmm. And all of this was essentially, and we'll get into this later and we don't got to get into the details here, but essentially gets repealed by NAFTA. And right. Right. And it just reminds you of Professor Diaz's quote, you know, poor Mexico so far from God, so close to the United States, (laughs) you know? Well,
1: yeah, totally.
0: The, and I just want to make one more point about the border in the U S Mexico border, which is we're talking here in, in case it wasn't totally clear in the text of what we were talking about. There was a time in the 19th century for most of us history where you could just come to the United States. There was no such thing as immigration control. (laughs) Right. Uh, Once you got off the boat, you could vote in the United States. Right, uh, famously, if you watch the 100% accurate historical documentary *Gangs of New York*, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it shows them doing something that's very real, which is that when the immigrant boats come in, the like local gangs or whatever would grab the people off the boat and send them to go vote for Tammany, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> which is a very real thing. Which doesn't it's called make
1: organizing sense. everywhere, sweetie.
0: Exactly, and it doesn't make sense in a modern context, right? Because you have no rights as <laughs> immigrants. Yeah. But it's important to say that's a, that the the idea that immigrants should have zero rights in this country is a modern invention, and it comes about it's a in this modern. Ex- time here, like r-
1: a radical idea, mm-hmm. you know.
0: And it and it was resisted by a lot of people at the time. It was considered to be a massive selling out of the promises of American freedom right. and you know uh, democracy or whatever. To basically like single out a huge group of people and be like oh, sorry no thanks you don't get rights actually um and so a transition like that it requires a, a a stern teaching of the population as to why this exists and this is sort of what i want to get to about this point about the u.s mexico border Part of the reason of militarizing the U.S.-Mexico border, part of the reason of the hypervigilance and violence on that border is to create an idea that these immigration restrictions need to exist and that the free movement of labor is inherently problematic and bad. And so I want to read just, this is from uh, Miguel Antonio Lavario's Militarizing the Border. It's from the introduction in Militarizing the Border. Uh, this quote real quick. For ethnic Mexicans in West Texas and along the U.S.-Mexico border, increased policing by state agencies such as the Texas Rangers, National Guard, U.S. Army, and Border Patrol suggested that the state and local communities categorically identified the ethnic Mexican as a threat that required vigilance and punitive action. The state's presence along the border shaped and reinforced the identity of ethnic Mexicans as an enemy that must be subdued lest their presence undermine the social, political, and cultural fabric of white America. And I think that sometimes people get things mixed up and they say, oh, Americans are super racist so they demand, say, the Chinese Exclusion Act or they demand a border patrol. But the reality is is that the Chinese Exclusion Act is what informs Americans about the <laughs> fact that they should be extra racist against the Chinese. The Border Patrol helps to inform Americans that they should be racist against, you know, Mexicans, whatever, right? And when you talk about abolition and things like that, getting rid of some of these things actually becomes a project of liberating people of some of these ideas, these negative right. solidarities that are being created.
1: Yeah, Totally. This is a really great quote.
0: Oh, I I wrote it for him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we want to leave you with a story from Greg Grandin because we haven't had enough downers today. And I know (laughs) the last few episodes have been pretty fucking depressing. Yeah. But uh, what are you going to do, right? It's American history. You know what you signed up for. Exactly. So we're going to leave you this story from Greg Grandin.
1: One example in particular captures what could be called the nationalization of border brutalism, or the borderification of national politics. In 1931, Harlan Carter, the Laredo son of a border patrol agent, shot and killed a Mexican-American teenager, the 15-year-old Ramon Cassiano, for talking back to him. Carter then followed his father into the patrol, becoming one of its most cruel directors Presiding over Operation Wetback in the 1950s, Carter transformed the patrol into, as the Los Angeles Times wrote, an army committed to an all out war to hurl tens of thousands of Mexican wetbacks back into Mexico. Carter was already a member of the National Rifle Association when he murdered Cassiano, and he remained a high ranking officer when the organization threw his years with the Border Patrol. Then, in 1977, after his retirement from the patrol, he led what observers called an extremist coup against the relatively more moderate NRA leadership, transforming that organization into a key institution of the new right, a bastion of individual rights absolutism, in this case, for the right to bear arms. Likewise, it was a Border Patrol agent who in 2015 invited Donald Trump to tour Laredo's port of entry just a few days after Trump announced his presidential candidacy. It all started with the border, and that's still where it is today, run the first two lines of Drive-By Truckers 2016 song Ramon Cassiano. The song ends, and Ramon still ain't dead enough.
0: Well, on that cheerful note, Uh, we'll see you all next week where we'll be talking, uh, with historian and friend of the show, uh, Ryan Archibald about travel restrictions and why you have to have a passport. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah. It was Um, a fun one. Yeah, so that's going to be a fun one. It's an interesting one. We'll also have, like I said, in a day or two, we'll go ahead and put out a little extra credit reading for y'all. We'll have an episode where we're going to talk about the eugenics program in Connecticut. So oh, if you yes. want to keep the sad train rolling, <laughs> stick with us. <laughs> All right, we'll see y'all next week.
1: All right, bye.
2: Made with creative deportation and missing ammo by the case, such bullet ran the operation But killing's been the bullet's business